Hey, working on it's KT. Have a Merry Christmas to you and your family. Hope you're doing well on this Christmas day and uh, enjoying the fire things. Keep it easy. Good morning, everyone. I hope everyone is having a wonderful holiday day and enjoying time with loved ones and friends and family and just getting that uh, well-deserved time off and a, a time to just reflect and be restful and maybe let your brain rest a little bit or sit back and listen to something nice. Hey, maybe you're all listening to Anchor. Yeah, I don't know. But I really hope that everyone has a wonderful, restful, peaceful day. I have a topic. I actually wanted to talk about this yesterday, but I I got off on another tangent with uh, bosons and fermions. Totally off topic, but very well worth putting out there. So the topic I wanted to talk about, which is very relevant to the holiday season, is um, something called frenemies. Now, I'm sure we've all heard the word frenemy. And uh, I'm going to read a definition from Wikipedia. And it says it's an oxymoron of the words friend and enemy that refers to a person with whom one is friendly despite a fundamental dislike or rivalry, or a person who combines the characteristics of a friend and an enemy. This term is used to describe personal, geopolitical, and commercial relationships, both among individuals and groups or institutions. Now, why in the world would I bring this topic up during the holiday season when we're all, you know, trying to relax and be happy and and, uh, peaceful with each other. Well, that is the goal, of course, but, you know, we have all been to many holiday celebrations with friends and family, and oftentimes uh, there's conflicts, quite often, actually. And, you know, this extends out, of course, beyond the holiday season. This can extend to relationships at work. This can extend to... Uh, people who were perhaps friends with you in the past and, you know, you just kind of hang on, like you you try to spend time on Facebook with them or, uh, you know, they'll, you'll be scrolling through your contacts and you're like, oh, I haven't talked to them in a while. Oh, I better give them a call. And another term for this is called ambivalent relationships. And there's actually, I was just reading an article about this, and there were some studies done. Uh, A researcher at the University of Minnesota named Michelle Duffy wanted to see if frenemies impacted people in the workplace, and not just any workers. She actually studied police officers. So what she did was she surveyed police officers on their levels of stress, absences from work, and how often they were undermined and supported by their closest co-worker. Unsurprisingly, she found that the more an officer felt undermined, the more unauthorized breaks they took, the more absent they were from work, and the less committed they were to their jobs. So, and it's not surprising at all, right? The more you feel undermined or, um, you know, like someone's out to get you or 
whatever that may be, of course, the less committed you are to something, the more stressful your life becomes. I mean, this really is just logical, but, you know, she went out and uh, did a study on this. So what about officers who had colleagues who were sometimes supportive? These officers missed even more work, took even more breaks, and felt even less committed. So if they were sometimes supportive. So if someone sometimes was very supportive of you, but other times were not, it actually had more of an impact. It, was, it had more of a mental impact, made you feel even less committed. Now think about this for a minute. That does make sense. If you know that someone is your enemy, you know, you've, you've got your guard up. If someone is kind of in the middle and a lot of times they're on your side or, you know, you can relax around them and then suddenly oop, they turn, well, <laughs> that's very stressful. It makes you constantly <clears throat> second guess the person, constantly on guard. You can't, you don't always avoid them. You're just constantly on guard. So, you know, th this is relevant during this season because you kind of, I just want to put it out there so that people are aware of this. So I, I think it's important for all of us to be aware of this idea of ambivalent relationships and just how draining they can be. And this can go both ways. I mean, you can have someone who you, you know, you really like, and you really just want to be friends with. And, you know, they're, they're friends with you most of the time, and then they just kind of flip on you. But it could also be you. So be careful if you're doing this to someone, you are causing a lot of stress in their life. And you need to be aware of this. So if you do a Google search on ambivalent relationships, you'll actually see a lot of information out there about this topic. And I've come across this one website called Science of People. And, you know, she references the study that I just mentioned. And then she goes on to categorize frenemies into three types. And I, I found this interesting, so I'm just going to read this. And it does seem to be some common sense here. Number one, the jealous frenemy. This is the most common type of frenemy. In fact, jealous is often the emotion that flips friends into enemies, and it goes both ways. A colleague is jealous of a promotion. You are jealous of a colleague's promotion. Someone is jealous of your raise, your hair, your smarts, your personality, your humor, your car, or... You are jealous of someone's raised hair, smarts, personality, humor, or car. Yeah, the problem. Jealousy is a little beast. It destroys trust, respect, and admiration. And then this is her quote again. I believe that it is almost impossible to have a healthy relationship where there is jealousy brewing. Bottom line, either get over the jealousy or get over the person. Number two, the undermining frenemy. When you have an undermining frenemy, you are constantly faced with challenges like this. You landed a new client. Should you tell them? You lost five pounds. 
Will they enable bad behavior if you go out to lunch? You want to invite some new friends over. Should you invite them? Undermining frenemies are usually great at passive-aggressive comments, sarcastic tones, and enabling your bad behavior. Yeah, so the problem. These kinds of frenemies are the worst. Why? You hope they will be supportive, but they often aren't. Bottom line, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Don't keep hoping. Cut this person out. Number three, the unsure frenemy. Humans hate having unfinished business. We also hate not knowing where we stand with someone. I think he is a close friend, but is he close friends with everyone? I think she likes me. Are we business friends or actual friends? He knows me, but I'm not sure if we are just acquaintances or actual contacts. Are we LinkedIn type contacts or Facebook type contacts? So the problem, you just aren't sure. Where do you stand? Do they help or support you? Are you constantly on guard and second guessing them? This kind of ambivalence takes a lot of energy because you are in a constant state of not knowing. Bottom line, have a talk, sort it out, put it all out on the table. So bottom line, ambivalence takes more energy. With toxic relationships, we know we need to cut them out. You know, we know it. We're on guard and we're prepared for it. Ambivalent relationships are much harder, but guessing, wondering, protecting, those all take a lot more energy. So I know this seems kind of like common sense, and, and once we hear it, you know, once I read about it, I'm like, oh yeah, you know, you, you, you kind of, you know about this, but did you ever actually put a label on it and bring it to the forefront of your brain and really think about it? Because we're all, you know, we're all focused on toxic relationships and toxic bosses and toxic, you know, whatever it is in our life. But are we really focused or aware of the ambivalence in our life and how much stress that really does cause? So keep your eye on it, everyone. Have a wonderful holiday season and talk soon. Hello, Working Like a Woman. This is D-Souls Productions, LLC. Legacy. Just wanted to reach out and first thank you for favoring my station. And I was listening to your content. I was like, wow, this is uh, very peaceful <laughs> listening to your content. Uh, I love the content about the healthcare and repeating history. And uh, yes, we tend to keep going down the same road and getting the same results and you know what the definition of that is uh, insanity but look forward to connecting with you and contacting you talk to you soon have a safe and wonderful holiday take care be safe peace hey d souls thanks for that call in and i'm glad you're enjoying the content it is insanity You are absolutely right. It is total insanity. I call it destabilization and the demoralization of America. That's what I call it. Well, it is. There's no access to basic health care and no access to the ability to 
live basically as a human being. Yeah, well, there there ain't no America in that. That's uh, the America I was raised to believe is a that of freedom and liberty and justice. And you heard uh, Boss Babes, her response to my call in about that, and she said she's she's from Germany. She now lives in the UK, and they. They, if, if you don't have a job, you get paid by the state, which in theory you're supposed to here, but you know that theory isn't yeah. working. No, you and, get extorted by the state here. Yeah. The state likes to extort its citizens here. And they, have, of course, have access to health care. Everyone has health care yeah, over duh. there. Uh, Everybody. Yeah, that's yeah. a big dot. I think everyone, just about every. It's, it's like denying that, that humans are a symbiotic organism. And that, you know, oh, well, just because my arm's sick doesn't mean the rest of my body's sick. Just because my arm has cancer doesn't mean I got cancer. That's how retarded we've become. Oh, yeah. No, this country's got some serious problems. And I, I, I stand by until we all have access to basic health care and the ability to live basically that we, we can't even move beyond that, really. Yeah, well, I'll tell you who can help. The churches can help, and so can all these team sports fanatics. They can all help by opening up their doors and the stadiums and churches to the homeless and uh, to set up mental health triages and uh, you know economic recovery triages and shit like that. Yeah, know? we need a triage for physical health care. We need a triage for basic living expenses, and we need triage for mental health care. Yeah, yeah. which three. pretty much isn't any different from physical health care. No, I it's mean, not. You know, but, nobody but it is nobody maintains their so-called mental health when they're in the middle of a physical uh, breakdown and crisis. You know. Oh no. So I, I, yeah, but I see what you're saying. Yes. No, I mean, there are some. I'm people... only saying it separately because our current healthcare system defines it separately. Sure, sure. And also, there are people that have no noticeable signs of being ill other than within their brains. Right. Uh, so. Right. And I, I could see how how that would require a specialist. <laughs> yes. Yes. So anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for the call in and keep Hey, listening. Merry Atheist Christmas. <laughs> Happy holidays. Hey, Patrick. Happy holidays. And uh, I just heard the the call in between you and Z about Jamestown. And I was actually born in Jamestown, and I have a lot of uh, you know, most of my family is from Jamestown. A lot of history. Uh, there. But I said to Z, you're going to make me call in and tell my Jamestown story. And he just gets this, uh, he gets this grin on his face. So anyway, my family, um, my great grandmother's cousin is Lucille Ball. And she, of course, is from Celeron, which is the town right next to Jamestown. And I don't know, what does that make her to me? Third, fourth, cousin I don't know but anyway cousin Lucy is from there and I was born in Jamestown I've never taken Z there we got to go on a tour of western New York and hey maybe we'll come visit you thank you so much for that call in and that is exactly it it is like it's you know it's it's the end of the darkness it's the beginning of you know the day is getting longer and um yeah, we're looking forward to spring and more daylight and 
you just, it, it starts to feel so much better. The celebration of the winter solstice, um, especially as a, a pagan celebration, has been around for, you know, long time. It's it's part of human history. And I'd, I'd, I'd love to share some information with you for those of you who are not familiar with the various pagan rituals. For pagans and Wiccans, the winter solstice is... Um, you know, often celebrated as Yule. Now, Yule is a season. And, of course, the winter solstice is a moment in time. And yesterday at, I believe it was 8.28 a.m. was the actual winter solstice. Well, 8.28 a.m. Eastern Time. Now, I'm in California. No, I'm sorry. 11.28 Eastern Time, 8.28 Pacific Time. Now, Yuletide generally begins on Mother's Night, the night of the solstice, and continues for a week or two after. Now, some pagans celebrate Yule earlier. You know, they might have their Yuletide celebration before the solstice, and some after the solstice. It depends on your particular... Um, you know, your particular celebration and the people that you're with. But it, it's appropriate at any time because Yule is actually a season. The celebration of Yule is one of the oldest winter celebrations in the world. I'm going to read something that I found on the, the BBC, actually, about the winter solstice. And it says, ancient people were hunters and spent most of their time outdoors. <clears throat> the seasons and weather played a very important part in their lives. Because of this, many ancient people had a great reverence for and even worshipped the sun. The Norsemen of Northern Europe saw the sun as a wheel that changed the seasons. It was from the word for this wheel, whole, whole Yule, I guess. The word Yule is thought to have come. At midwinter, the Norsemen lit bonfires, told stories, and drank sweet ale. The ancient Romans also held a festival to celebrate the rebirth of the year. Saturnalia ran for seven days from the 17th of December. It was the time when the ordinary rules were turned upside down. Men dressed as women and masters dressed as servants. The festival also involved decorating houses with greenery, lighting candles, holding processions, and giving presents. The winter solstice falls on the shortest day of the year and was celebrated in Britain long before the arrival of Christianity. The Druids would cut the mistletoe that grew on the oak tree and give it as a blessing. Oaks were seen as sacred and the winter fruit of the mistletoe was a symbol of life in the dark winter months. It was also the Druids who began the tradition of the Yule Log. The Celts thought that the sun stood for 12 days in the middle of winter, and during this time a log was lit to conquer the darkness, banish evil spirits, and bring luck for the coming year. Many of these customs are still followed today. They have been incorporated into the Christian and secular celebrations of Christmas. So I wish to all of you a joyful Yuletide. Hey, hey, what's up everyone? I'm out here uh, doing some grilling and just cooking up some lunch. But I thought while I'm uh, doing this, I thought I'd do a quick little video on kind of what's going on in my mind right now. And it's really about 
friendships. And that's a conversation that uh, I've seen twice this week, and I feel like if I've seen something twice, I'm a little compelled to talk about it. So in our weekly call in the Lion's Den, Sean Whalen talks about uh, in their, the two kinds of friends that you have. One is the, the person that is an anchor, the person that is weighing you down, maybe holding you back. And then there's the friend that uh, pushes or is a sail. They're pushing you, they're blowing into your sail, encouraging, encouraging you, wanting to see you do better. Um, and it's quite the extreme difference between the two. And, and it's not that I'm asking you to analyze and look at your friends right now, but just pay attention to who are these people that are around you. And in another uh, video that I watched this week by Tom Bilyeu and his guest on the show, and I don't know her name right off the bat, but she talked about another person. And the way she referred to it was there's three people. Three people. There's the best friend, and, the, and I look at the best friend as somebody that is there for you, supports you, uh, and what Sean said, pushing into your sail, encouraging you. Then you also have your toxic friend, which is the anchor, that person that's pulling you down, but you know exactly where you stand with this toxic person. You know exactly what you get. So you know what the boundaries are with your best friend and your toxic friend. But the person in the middle, the ambivalent friend, is who she was talking about. And that was really interesting to me because that is a person that is 50-50. They're mixed emotions. They're either not all the way there for you, but they're still supportive, sort of. Um, so those people you have to work a little harder at. You have to expend a little bit more energy because, you know, is this person really worth your time? And it's just definitely good, some good food for thought. And I'm not here to categorize, asking you to start compartmentalizing your, your friends, but I'm a big fan of paying attention to people. I've always been curious about the psychology and the mannerisms of people because back when I bartended, that's what I did every Friday and Saturday night as I watched people. So I'm always very intuitive and I'm very inquisitive about what people do. So as you're going along through your week, and if you ever have somebody there that's just driving you crazy, take a look at it. See if they're an anchor. See if they're a sales. See if they're a best friend. See if they're toxic. And definitely see if they're ambivalent because maybe, maybe that's why you're having a problem with this person because they're just ambivalent and look it up and see what it means for you and maybe that will help you uh, get through some people get through some craziness in your week as you uh, interact with people because that's just what we do <laughs> we interact with people all week long anyway thanks for listening and I'm going to turn my burger burgers over That brings us to stereotype, prejudice, and discrimination. And I want to make some distinctions between these terms because they're important. Stereotypes are categories. They're general categories. You can make stereotypes about me, right? You can look at me and say, well, he's a long-haired white male with a tie. I'm not sure what to do about that. I don't really have a stereotype for that. Most people have a stereotype for long-haired white male. As we said before, not necessarily a positive one. Uh, some people might have a positive one. Others have a stereotype for short hair white male with a tie on, but very few people have a category that fits long haired white male with tie. In other words, it violates some stereotypes and assumptions then are harder to make because the stereotype is the schema that guides our judgment. It's the category we use to judge the world around us.
Some stereotypes can be positive. So you might think, well, this group is always, insert your positive characteristic here, and they also can be very negative. This group's always like, you insert your group and you insert your characteristic. You've got to be careful to realize, and we'll be pointing this out, it isn't about the validity of this. It's about human beings, the validity of the judgments. The judgments are almost by definition invalid. You can't paint a broad brush across a group and apply that to any individual. Think about yourself for a moment. You're a member of a group. You're a member of an ethnicity. You're a member of a sex group. You're a member of an age group. You're a member of a geographical group. You're probably a member of some kind of political group. You're probably a member of some kind of religious group. And all those things are labels. And then you think to yourself, are you exactly like everybody else in that group? Or do you differ in some significant and individual and unique ways? And you wouldn't want people to take their label that they have, positive or negative. Well, you might take their positive, but you certainly wouldn't want their negative label to be applied to you as an individual. Because it wouldn't apply necessarily to you as an individual. It would be a schema-based judgment that you're laying on somebody based on their membership in a group. And that's essentially what you have with stereotype. So stereotypes then will lead to prejudices. Prejudices is an unjustified negative attitude towards an individual based on that person's membership in a group. So we then take those categories and we apply them to people like they are valid. So, oh, they're one of those. I know all about those. And those put your group in there. You know you have biases. You know you have stereotypes. You know you have negative groups that you think exist in this world. Whether you want to admit that or not is a different question. Admitting it is the first step to fixing it. Because what happens is we have in-groups and we have out-groups. And that is the way it is. In-groups are the people we feel affiliated with. Out-groups are them. Them are people we usually don't trust or we tolerate. We tolerate them. And it can be, con it can be concocted so simply. Research has shown us the minimal group paradigm. You can put people together randomly. And within an hour, they've formed some negative opinions about another group that's been formed randomly without any real information about them. That's powerful. I'll give you an example I saw once. I go to UT games because my wife loves UT, Tennessee Vols. Now, me, I'm sports neutral. I like sports. I'm glad people do sports. I enjoy watching people do their thing, and I can get into almost anything. When I go to watch Little League sports, if I don't have a kid on the team, then I'm from whatever team is behind, and as soon as they get ahead, I'm for the other team. I just want people to have a good time doing what they do. But I go to a sporting event, and I get into it. I yell. I like to have a good time. And I was sitting there at this UT game in Neyland Stadium, which has a lot of people in orange in it. And I'm sitting in some seats that a friend gave my wife tickets to, which were season ticket seats. And behind us are a bunch of people with season tickets, which means they have some disposable income because those are not cheap, right? So we know something about these people. We could put a stereotype on them, perhaps, but let's not do that. All I know is these people may have gone to this school. They may be college educated. They may not. They may have borrowed tickets like I did. But they're sitting there watching this game with us. And they seem like nice people. Everybody's having a good time. And then all of a sudden you have this guy who walks out of the little chute that goes back under the stands. And he walks out and he looks up. And it's an older fellow. He's probably in his 40s or 50s. I'm basing that on the gray hair that he had. And he's wearing a Florida Gator shirt. And people start booing this man. They start chanting and they start throwing epithets at him they start cussing at him and the people behind me who I just happened to be close enough to hear are saying man what an ass he can't believe he did that and he's sitting there he's he's committed the crime of being them all he's done at this point is wear a t-shirt 
for an opposing team. And these people who have never met this man before are, are getting really agitated at his mere presence. That's stereotype leading to prejudice. He then goes and does this gator chomp thing. He seems to be reveling in this negativity he's created. And then they really let loose on him. And the people behind me say he's going to get his ass kicked. And he'll deserve it too. Now keep that in mind. He's going to get his ass kicked and he'll deserve it. What they are doing now, they've gone from peaceful, sports-loving people to advocating violence against a man who wore a t-shirt and did this. They're not going to go down and commit the violence, but if somebody else did it, they'd go, oh, well, you know, that's what you get for being them in the wrong place at the wrong time and being proud of being them. It's that pervasive. It's religion against religion. It's country against country. It's race against race. It's men against women. It's old against young. It's every label you can apply and form an in-group with against all the other labels who represent out-groups. That then can lead to discrimination. Prejudice is an attitude. Discrimination is an action. It's an attitude made manifest in a behavior that in some way is negative or harmful towards a member of a group because they're a member of that group. That's key. Now, in olden days, which aren't that old, people wearing their racial prejudices on their sleeves in America were very common. And I don't like to hear the term reverse racism because racism is just racism. Do some white people hate black people? Yes, they do. Do some black people hate white people? Yes, they do. Do some blacks hate Hispanics? Yes. Do some Hispanics hate whites? Yes. You name the group. Do some Protestants hate Catholics? Just go to Ireland. Do some group of people hate some other group of people? Absolutely. Be, be real clear on this. I'm not talking about just race in America. It's just a very convenient example of a worldwide human phenomenon. right? When you look at this now, people today don't wear their racial prejudices on their sleeve very often because it's become politically incorrect. It doesn't mean that they've gone away. Racism that has, has been institutionalized doesn't just disappear. Sexism that's been institutionalized doesn't just disappear. Ageism that's been institutionalized doesn't just appear. Religious prejudices that are institutionalized don't just disappear. There is actually a clause in the Tennessee state constitution that says an atheist may not hold office in Tennessee. That's a category of person who is now not allowed to participate in civil governance because of their label. It's codified. That's the point here. So anytime we are behaving in a negative way towards somebody, overtly, it's easy to see that it is based on prejudice. But what if we do it covertly? What if we even do it without being aware that we're doing it? Could we possibly behave in a way that we weren't aware of? Well, Freud said we do it all the time. And I told you before, Freud is hard to operationalize. Freud is hard to get a hold of because how do you make that manifest? How do you show that people aren't aware of the driving forces of their own behaviors. Well, there's a whole host of research in this domain that shows it. And I'm going to get to an example of that. Another application of this is the just world hypothesis or the just world belief, which allows us to derogate, to put down victims, people who are victims of crimes or situations by blaming them because in a just world, Good people have good things happen to them. Bad people have bad things happen to them. And we all have this belief that this world is, on the whole, probably just. And that if something bad happened to you, and I don't know anything about you, 
It must be because you deserved it in some way. Somehow. You look back at mental illness and we'll see that it was considered to be uh, a demon possession. Well, you must have offended God or you must have invoked the devil. You must have deserved that. And you see it today in rape victims. The first thing a lot of people say, well, what was she wearing? It doesn't matter what she was wearing. Well, was she drunk? It doesn't matter if she was drunk. Those are ways to say, how was she a bad person that deserved to be raped? And nobody deserves to be raped. It's a human cognitive process that allows us to correct an injustice in the world by just believing that somehow the victim deserved it. And if we have prejudices, they may or may not be manifest into behaviors, but sometimes they are. And this is a, a study that I just want to give you an example of this. So this is a common thing in America is race relations can be tense. Again, the world over, there are tribes that uh, fight tribes in Africa. There are Catholics who fight Protestants in Ireland. People who homogeneously or appear homogeneous in terms of their skin tone still have in-groups and out-groups. And this is not a black-white thing, but this is a way of, of demonstrating how implicit prejudice can result in discrimination. So uh, looking at pre-interview racial bias, white sales managers evaluated the resumes of either a white or African-American applicant for a sales position. Now, how do you know if they're white or African-American? These resumes are identical. They're identical resumes that people have never met these quote-unquote applicants. They're being asked to evaluate what they think is just a random resume. The only difference is the name on the resume. It's either a quote-unquote African-American sounding name or a white sounding name. Males, in this case, because you add in females and that adds in another little layer of complexity. Right? What's an African-American sounding name? They did some pre-testing. They tested names and, and had people rate whether it sounded white or whether it sounded African-American. And they used the ones that were most reliably categorized as one or the other. They were making these labels stick. They were using the stereotypes for the express purpose of seeing whether people have their stereotypes and prejudices activated by simple name change. That's it. So you have these objectively very, very good resumes. And here, in short, is the result. We have a low accountability group in the dotted line, and we have a high accountability group in the straight line, this undotted line right here. The high accountability group, nobody is told what this purpose is. They just think that they're, they're reviewing resumes. They have no idea what's really going on. They're managers. They do this all the time. And in the low accountability group, they're just doing that. In the high accountability group, they're told that somebody will come along and review their choice and see how they made their choices, right? They're, they don't say anything about race or anything like that. They're just going to talk to you about how you made your decisions so they can better understand how people evaluate resumes. It seems pretty innocuous and doesn't seem like it would have any effect whatsoever. But they call that the high accountability group because somebody's going to hold you accountable for the rating you made. The low accountability group, you just make a rating. And this is what emerges. In the low accountability group, the white-sounding applicant rates at 4.85. That's 97%. You can't get much higher than a 4.85. At 97% of, out of 5. So you look at a 5-point scale, it's very hard to convert that in your mind to what, what's the meaning of that. That's pretty high. It doesn't get much higher than 4.85. In other words, this must be an awesome resume. 
But look in the same group what the African-American sounding name gets as a score. A 4.12. A 4.12 and a 4.85, they're both over 4. Does that really matter? Well, it really does matter. That's almost 15 percentage points different. And the only difference is the name on the application. Now, if you ask these people, are they racist, they probably would say, of course not. Why would I let that even enter my mind? I, I would uh, uh, only, only evaluate a, a candidate on their qualifications. They don't know what's happening here. They're unaware of the research paradigm. If you ask them if they're racist, most of them would probably say, no, of course not. I'm not racist. But that's the whole point. If you don't admit to yourself that you have stereotypes, that you have schemas, that you have biases, you'll never even really be able to work on them. And they exist and they can cause actual real world damage. And again, 4.12, is that really any different? Yeah. You think about a job with 100 applicants and somebody scores 15% higher than another person. Who's going to get the job? Who's going to get the interview? There it is, right there in black and white, no pun intended. That's a huge difference based nothing upon a name. It's a reliable difference. It's an average of many ratings, so we have confidence in it, and it's been replicated many times. It's also been replicated with other race groups. It's also been replicated with sex, male and female. These things happen. Check out the high accountability group, though. This is fascinating to me. In the high accountability group, where all they know is that somebody's going to check my ratings later, they don't give the African-American a giant boost, but they give them a boost. It actually goes up. It goes up to 4.35. But what happens now is also fascinating. Becoming aware that somebody else is going to review what you did. The white applicants, that white sounding name evaluation goes down, way down to 4.12. These people don't know what's going on. They don't know that they did that because they're not connected to all the other people in the study. What you just see is a correction of a racial prejudice, probably because people don't want to see themselves as prejudiced, and they've made a course correction, which is maybe more likely to be the quality of the application. If we average this and that, that's probably the real quality. Without any accountability, it was inflated. But with accountability, it was deflated maybe more than it should have been. This one was inflated, but maybe as it should have been, right? So you see that this is an insidious process that happens between in-groups and out-groups, has eternally happened since human beings have come about, and unless we do something, will continue to happen. But your education puts you in a position to help correct these issues, and the first corrections should start with ourselves. I'm a person with biases and schemas that, that aren't valid, but I know that and I check that against reality as often as I can and I try not to be a cognitive miser, I try to think about it deeply and I try to be willing to change. And I want you to know that if you come here I'm going to make it worth your time. But also practical knowledge for me is an important thing. You should be able to get something from this class you can use in your daily life. There's nobody here that don't got an attitude. Somebody got an attitude. Got a good attitude, a bad attitude, an attitude pro this or con that. We all have attitudes. Attitudes really, beliefs, could be about people, could be about objects, could be about ideas, situations. They are evaluative in nature. So not all beliefs are evaluative in nature. Right? But in a way, you think about it, 
They kind of are if they're an attitude. So I can have an attitude that today's a nice day in terms of the temperature, and I like rain. People go, no, nah, that's wrong. But it really is just my attitude that determines it. It's my belief. I evaluate whether rain is a good thing or a bad thing. Evaluating it is what makes it an attitude. It has a valence. Usually it's towards pro or towards con. Based on experience, guides our behaviors, but not all our behaviors. A lot of people think that people will do things that are consistent with the attitudes and beliefs that they hold, but the social psych chapter, I hope, will show you that's not always the case, and sometimes it's clearly not the case. People sometimes act in ways very different than you would predict if you knew their attitudes. So they have affective, meaning emotional, they have behavioral and cognitive or thinking components, these attitudes. And we change attitudes during our lives, and we try to change other people's attitudes. So if you've ever had a political discussion, for example, or a religious discussion, or even a discussion about where you want to eat dinner tonight, or what movie you want to see, you have two people with different attitudes or similar attitudes. When they're similar, it's pretty easy to resolve the discussions or the decisions. When they're really different, though, you run into conflict. And people would like others to change their attitudes. We'll see that people like consistency and they like other people who are consistent with them. They like people who are like themselves. Attitude change, the little triangle means change, occurs via two routes. The central route is for attitudes that are strongly held and are important to somebody. So the only way you're going to change that attitude is with an important message. You're not going to change it willy-nilly, right? You've got to have some kind of convincing argument processed with close attention, and it's got to seem logical, and as we'll see, it needs to come from a credible source. Otherwise, you just discount it right off the bat. So if you want to change somebody's deeply held opinion, you need to have somebody who has an important, logical, convincing message and delivers it with authority that is deemed credible. Otherwise, the person won't even pay attention to it, right? They'll just dismiss it right off the bat. But there's a lot of attitudes we hold that really aren't that strong, and they really aren't that important, and they can be changed through what's called the peripheral route. And the kinds of things that we see changing the peripheral route are more maybe it's people's preferences or whims, but not something that they hold deeply. Now the message is not that important. It might be given by an attractive or expert source, even though they don't have to be expert because it's somewhat superficial. You'll oftentimes see people that look like doctors pitching things on TV, and underneath it it says, not an actual doctor. Right? They're just wearing a lab coat. And that's enough. That's enough. They don't actually have to have credibility. They just have to appear credible, roughly speaking. It doesn't have to receive a lot of attention, but it changes attitude, oftentimes through repetition. Most advertisements are played again and again and again and again in the same time slots, hitting the same audience again and again and again. And people might change their opinions of things without even really realizing they're doing it. My favorite example is toothpaste. Are you really devoted to your toothpaste? Is it the only toothpaste you'll ever use? You won't use another toothpaste and you won't hear anybody slam your toothpaste, right? Or is it just toothpaste? Go to Walmart or any other big box store and go to the toothpaste aisle. Normally you just go get your brand, right? 
and you don't really step back. But step back and look at how many pastes there are for your teeth. There's tons and tons and tons of pastes for teeth, but they only really have one active ingredient if we're talking about preventing tooth decay, and they all have it, right? So what would make you change toothpaste brands? My guess is it wouldn't take much. Maybe a sale or a friend saying, try this, or somebody who's pitching it on TV that you're like, oh, my favorite actor uses this brand, so why not? Why not indeed? Because it's not that important. But if you want to change somebody's deeply held conviction, that's not going to be easy to do. So factors in changing attitudes, you'll want to know these. One I've already alluded to is the communicator. Who is delivering the message? Is the communicator credible? Does he have an agenda? Or does she have honesty? Or does he have something to gain? Or is he or she attractive? Are they well-known? Are they popular? Are they expert? Are they mature-looking? Looking mature swings elections. They found that candidates who are deemed to look mature get more votes irrespective of their platforms. People just want to believe that somebody's mature. And you think about the upcoming elections we have. They always happen in every year or two years or four years. How deeply have you processed the actual candidates, right? You think about the depth of your convictions and people are like, yes, I believe this. But then you look at their actions when they go to the polls. So if y'all are going to vote in the SGA elections, who are you voting for? Do you even know who these people are? And then oftentimes we go to the polls maybe to, to vote for a big ticket item, like who we send to the United States Senate or House of Representatives or executive branch, but then we have all these local people we vote for too, and many times people don't even know who they are, but it doesn't stop them from voting based on the label they see attached to it, or whether the name sounds good or interesting, or whether they've seen them in person. So one person has come up to me from the local election, and I now know that person. I'm more likely to vote for them simply because what? I don't know their opponent. I know them. Not well, but I've met him. So those things sway us because, you see, he looked like a credible guy to me. He seemed pretty honest. I know he wants to gain office, but it's not a high office. And I think, well, this is going to be more work for him than anything he could ever get out of it, right? He's a good-looking guy. I don't know him. He wasn't popular. But I actually quizzed him on a few things that I thought people should know if elected for office. And he had great answers. And he was a former Eagle Scout. And I thought, you know, that conveys information, doesn't it? Because it tells me he's got a certain maturity. Those are elements that we don't consciously process, but frequently unconsciously take note of, and it sways us. The communication itself, is it logical? Is it clear? Is it convincing? Because if you paid attention to any political discussion, for example, what you'll see is both sides both sides being left or right, and this being America, I love all sides, right? You have a right to think whatever you want to think. But what you'll see is they often take very deep, different interpretations of the same occurrences. Meaning, the facts are seen differently, right? They're not different facts, theoretically. They're different interpretations. And so, if I have an already deeply held opinion, 
maybe it's a worldview, maybe it's a political persuasion, that's actually going to influence how I interpret facts and reality to change me from that position, not that it's right or wrong to be in a position, don't get me wrong, but if you want to change somebody that's already got a deeply held, then you better be logical, clear, and convincing. Is there a fear appeal? We use fear appeals all the time, right? We have changed dramatically as a country in what we assume to be basic privacy rights and freedom rights since 9-11, right? Because people saw a terrible, terrible occurrence happen fairly randomly. Right? Nobody saw it coming. And there's a fear that it could happen again. So we don't want it to happen again. And we take all manner of measures to, to prevent it. But how many measures are too far or unnecessary? It's hard to know. But if you have that fear, it's hard to process things in a totally objective fashion because you're dealing with an emotional aspect that doesn't necessarily lend itself to logic. There's not a right answer. All you can say is whether something did or didn't happen afterwards. So you can say everything we've done has worked. Or maybe it's only been some subset of what we've done has worked. Or if it happens, God forbid, and all the stuff we thought was working didn't work, then we would only know then. But we make big decisions about our lives, oftentimes not based on logic, but based on emotion, the way we feel. And is it heard repeatedly? Is it heard repeatedly? Is it heard repeatedly? Is it heard repeatedly? In political advertisements, a lot of times when you do the fact checking, people will say that's clearly not true, right? But they say it again and again and again and again and again. And a lie told frequently enough oftentimes is perceived as truth. How can they get away with it? Well, it's not a bold-faced lie. But it's an interpretation of facts that seems really negative and said again and again and again, it becomes convincing, even if it's not accurate. So the communication, the medium matters. The medium changes. There used to be only one real medium, and that was face-to-face -face interaction. It was only after the advent of the printing press, right? that we started even getting literacy in society. And that was a long time coming. In the 20th century, most Americans could read, but we didn't have technologies in the early 20th century that were widespread. Radios, when they first came about, were luxury items. Televisions were luxury items. Now radios and TVs are normal. They come as standard units in cars. Cars are normal, right? The face-to-face -face communication that this young man came and was trying to meet people in the neighborhood is unusual. But that has a compelling element to it. Because I can turn off a radio, I can tune out a TV, but when I have that face-to-face -face interaction, it's harder to ignore that. Because now I have the power of the in-person process, face-to-face. -face. Print. Do people even get magazines and newspapers anymore? Of course they do, but not nearly as much as they used to. Speech, is that one that's going to be televised? What about YouTube? What about Internet? Facebook is a good medium for some target audiences, but a poor medium for you in general, right? The 18-year-old crowd is easier to reach on a Selly app than it is to reach on Facebook or MySpace. Things that change really, really quickly. Mediums used to be somewhat static. There was in-person, 
You could go see a speech, right? Or you could watch it on TV and watch it on radio, but now, or hear it on the radio or read it in the paper, now we've got this electronic format where we can email people and we can text people and we can have them watch videos and all manner of things. Which one's most effective? It depends on your target audience and your use of the medium. Finally, we got the audience. Who are you talking to? Right? If you've got an audience that's open to change, then you have the possibility of changing their attitudes. If you've got an audience that's entrenched, a mob does not change its opinion very easily. Right? But not uncivilized, just a group of people. If you have an audience of people who've already got a committed position, that might be what brought them together as an audience. To walk in with the opposite opinion and expect them to be open to the notion that you have to, to convey is not a very logical or realistic thing to do. It's interesting. I watched a, a seminar given by a physicist on the moon landing myth, right, where people believe that the moon landing was a fake. Some people hold that belief deeply and they say, I can prove it with all these elements. Well, his entire talk was showing that those elements really aren't correct. That there was a good physical explanation for the shadow going this way or there being a ripple in the flag or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All the things that are used. He said, but what's amazing to me is after I go through all the science of how everything that's used as evidence to, to prove that it was a hoax, I've dispelled all of that at the end of my talk. I still have people come up to me and think it's a hoax. The, that element of the audience was not open to change. They had decided it was a hoax and no amount of evidence to the contrary is going to be sufficient for them to believe necessarily. But if other people are like, I'm kind of on the fence, I don't know. Was it a hoax? Was it real? Those people might be open to hearing it as evidence, potentially. Cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance happens to all of us. We're going to talk about it for a little bit here. Cognitive dissonance is a motivation to reduce tension that you feel when your attitude and your behavior are at odds with one another. You ever do something that you felt was really against your beliefs and it made you feel weird to do it? because it wasn't consistent with what you felt or what you believed. People do it all the time. They're put in positions in all manner of situations, as we'll see, that make us behave in ways that aren't consistent with our beliefs or our values. So cognitive dissonance, and we're going to see some of the research behind it, is a motivation to alleviate that discomfort that happens when you are acting in such a way as to be at odds with your attitudes, values, or beliefs. The classic example is cigarette smoking. Cigarette smoking is known now. It wasn't known in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s to cause cancer. It's now known to be a risk factor for all manner of health problems. 
But that was absolutely not known in the early 20th century. It became known and covered up in the late 20th century. And now there's no question about it, but people still smoke. Anybody got a pack of cigarettes I can borrow for a second? Anybody? Come on, you can admit it. I used to smoke. I like nicotine. All right, cool. Let me see that pack. <laughs> Newport. Oh, is it menthols? No. Okay, I like menthols. Mmm. Smell that cigarette. And my mouth actually starts watering. What is that? Conditioning. Classical conditioning. That's correct. It's actually watering. Now, Surgeon General's warning. Smoking by pregnant women may result in fetal injury, premature birth, and low birth weight. Well, hell, I'm not a pregnant woman, so I can smoke. Right? It's a rather, it's a rather non-convincing message, right? It's going for a fear appeal. It's going to try to make me think, well, gosh, if those things could happen to an unborn, uh, you know, if that could happen to a fetus or cause birth defects, mm, maybe it could be bad for me. But it's not directly stated that it's bad for me. And, man, they taste good when you smoke them. If you don't smoke, they taste like shit. Right? Nobody ever took their first drag off a cigarette and mmm, that's tasty. Right? But they get that nicotine rush, and then they smoke it, and they're like, I can handle that. And before they know it, they're like, man, these are great. These are awesome. The habituation process, right, and the addiction process. And then they don't get a nicotine rush anymore. They get alleviation of nicotine withdrawal, and they get a lifestyle and a habit that goes with it and all kinds of other things that makes it really, really, really hard to quit it. As we saw before, about 5% or so of people who attempt the first time with no assistance whatsoever are successful. But yet, nowadays, you can't get away from the message that it's bad for you. So you have dissonance, unpleasant, unpleasant tension state. I know it's unhealthy, but I smoke. So I can do one of two things to alleviate the tension. I can quit smoking or cut down, maybe, on smoking. And that would alleviate the tension between the behavior and the attitude. Because the attitude is hard to avoid, isn't it? Or you could change the attitude. You could actually care less. I can say, oh, research is, is not conclusive. I smoke cigarettes. I know people smoke until the, their 80s. You can use anecdotal reasoning. That's a smoker's lounge ceiling mural. That's not such a subtle message, is it? I wonder if they'll stop smoking now. Probably not. Canada... Canada has some very serious warning labels. They aren't subtle at all. They are in your face about the dangers of smoking. Some who seem reasonable about some things seem unreasonable about other things, but that's normal. Training and critical thinking is critical. So here we have a person, Roanoke Times, Melissa, worries about the effect on her unborn child from the sound of jackhammers. I don't know, man. Those jackhammers might be affecting my unborn child in a very negative way. But the cigarette smoking isn't? Fascinating, isn't it? She's actually concerned about her child. She's worried about an environmental hazard as she engages in hazardous behavior with regard to her unborn child. Right? That's, is that crazy? No. It's human. It's what human beings do. Because... Human beings have this almost limitless capacity to skew reality to make it more palatable. 
So here's an actual patient from the local clinic that I worked at and her rationalization for not quitting smoking. So she was asked by her physician, what do you see as the pros and the cons? That's the place you start. Obviously there's some pros or you wouldn't be doing it. If it was all cons, you'd probably quit, right? So there's some, some question. And the patient says, I see the benefits of quitting smoking include much improved health throughout her lifetime. Less aggravation of existing allergy symptoms. So I've already got a health problem that's made worse by this. Less sinus infections. Better health for my family members because I won't be exposing my kids to secondhand smoke. Elimination of smoking financial costs, which back then, $3 a pack, pack a day, it's $1,100 a year. And she's thinking, man, gym membership only costs 65 a month. I would actually, I would actually net $300 or so, $400. Even with a gym membership, I'd still have more money in my pocket. These are all clear, compelling, logical reasons to quit smoking, right? This is what's owned by the patient. The patient themselves came up with the list. But everyone's got a bad habit. Smoking's better than drinking. Besides, I can die in a car wreck tomorrow. When it's my time to go, I'll go. Foof. Just like that. Cognitive dissonance. She knows this. She knows this. And she smokes. This makes that okay. The dissonance is alleviated by a shift in the attitude. I could actually quit and I'd be consistent with all of this. But if I can't quit, if I find myself challenged and it's very difficult to quit, then how am I going to live with myself knowing that I'm doing damage to my, my own health and maybe my own children's health and I'm, I'm spending money I don't necessarily have to spare? You know what? Life is short. Oh well. I can just eradicate it as a tension state by changing my attitude. The attitude is the change there. This study, the classic study of Carl Festinger of cognitive dissonance. It's a hard thing to prove. Now, that makes some sense to you. I can see that you could probably look at that example and that makes sense. But something that just makes sense doesn't work for us in science. We have to prove it. To operationalize that and test it experimentally is difficult. That's a hard thing to wrap your head around. But Carl Smith and Festinger, 57 I believe it was, came up with a a design that showed this in action, this principle in action. So a study of insufficient justification versus over justification. Patients, or excuse me, participants were given either a dollar, back in that day that would be worth about six bucks in today's values, or they were given twenty dollars, which would be worth about what, hundred and twenty dollars today. This is an old this is an old study. So you imagine today you're in this study. You don't know you're in this study. You don't know the conditions of this study until you're in it. All you got to do is tell a little white lie. Now, most people like to see themselves as honest people, right? I'm an honest person, right? You think you're an honest person. So every time that you would lie, I would hope so, right? If you are hiding Anne Frank in your attic and the Nazis come and say, are you hiding a Jew in your attic? I would hope you would say, of course not. Why would I do that? That would be a benevolent lie, right? There's a real good moral reason to engage in what otherwise would be an immoral behavior, right? That's 
because ethics are debatable that we have debates in ethics. The idea that we would just lie to people with no real moral reason to do so is repugnant to most people. We don't like people to lie to us. We are offended when people lie to us, are we not? You find out somebody told you a lie, you feel cheated. You feel like you might have to reevaluate that relationship, depending on how big the lie was. But a little white lie, interesting. So here's the thing. Puts people in a situation that is by definition boring. The situation is such that you are going to be brought in, you're given a board with pegs to turn. You turn the peg clockwise, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the next row, the next row, the next row, and then you turn them all back. The task is designed to be monotonous, tedious, and unlikable. Right? You engage in a half an hour of tedious, monotonous, unlikable behavior. You don't know why, you're just in a study. You assume there's some purpose to this. And then they tell you, we have a person that usually meets our participants as they come in, and you're randomly assigned hereafter, that tells the participants that it's going to be an enjoyable task. We don't want people thinking that it's not enjoyable and not coming and word getting out. So we have somebody we usually pay to tell them it's going to be a, a, an enjoyable, interesting learning experience or something to that effect. But that person didn't make it today. And we're wondering if you would do it for us. We'll pay you to do it. In some cases, they got paid a dollar, right? You were randomly assigned. Or you got paid $20. In other words, you were going to get the equivalent of 6 bucks or 120 bucks to just go into the other room and tell a person you think is another participant that what you just did and you know to be monotonous and boring is actually interesting and fun. Not hurting anybody really, are you? They're already coming in to the study. And then after they do this, they're asked about their opinions of the study they were in. So as far as they know, this is just all regular, normal procedure. They get to the end of it, and they say, well, how enjoyable were these tasks? Negative five to positive five. How much did you learn? Zero to ten. How much scientific importance do you think this study has? Zero to ten. Would you likely participate in a similar experiment in the future? Negative five to positive five. And what you have here is a control group that didn't have to tell the lie. They weren't asked to tell a lie. So you get a rating of what people generally see this task to be. Then you got the $1 group and the $20 group. How enjoyable was it? Negative 0.45. Neutral, actually slightly negative, right? How much did you learn? Three on a scale of one to 10. How important? Neutral, five, 5.6. It must have some value or they wouldn't have us do it, right? Would you do it again? Neutral to slightly negative. Nah, I wouldn't want to do it again. But if you got a dollar to lie, all of a sudden, the tasks were significantly more enjoyable. Now, you didn't think they were any more uh, knowledge-based, and you didn't learn anything more. You thought they were a little more important, but really, more importantly, check it out. You'd be more likely to do it again. You would do an experiment like this again. That's clearly the positive side of things. That's your attitude, isn't it? That's attitude being measured here. Behavior, you did a boring task, then you lied about it. Now would you do it again? 
Yeah, I think I would do it again. But look at the $20 people. They're no different than not getting paid, not being asked to tell a lie at all. They tell the truth to themselves. That's the key here. I have about equivalents there, 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 and there. In other words, if you paid me $120 to sell somebody a little white lie, I don't really have any cognitive dissonance. Who wouldn't tell a little white lie for 120 bucks? Doesn't hurt anybody. They're going to be here for 30 minutes. They're going to do it anyway. In other words, there's no inconsistency between the behavior of telling a white lie and my belief of myself as an honest person if you put $120 in the picture. But if I told you a lie for six measly bucks, now I have something's got to change. The behavior's not consistent. So what can I change? My attitude, I'll actually see the task as more interesting, right? That I learned more and it was more important. They changed their attitude. Yes, sir. Were they aware that one group was getting only a dollar and the other? No, actually nobody got paid in the end. So it was a real, it was a real terrible thing for them. <laughs> yeah. They then explained that social psych research often is based on deception because if you told people what was really going on, they wouldn't behave in those ways, right? They would know what was going on. You'd get experimenter bias. You'd get participant bias. What they wanted was an unbiased look at what people would do under certain conditions. So in the end, nobody got paid to do it. But one group told a lie and thought they were going to get paid a lot. One group told a lie and thought they weren't going to get paid much at all. And the people who thought they weren't going to get paid much at all didn't feel good about that. So they actually changed their attitude so that it wasn't a lie anymore. But the dollar group, could they be looking at it and thinking, well, we can get paid more because these guys are hmm, they, they were unaware of the other groups. Yeah, they were not. They didn't know about the comparison. As far as they knew, they just were in an experiment. So everybody was then randomly assigned to those two groups. And yeah. So what you see is an actual clear-cut experiment where the behavior is inconsistent with a person's attitude. In one case, throw a lot of money in on it, and it's like, well, who wouldn't? So now I don't feel so bad about it. But in the other case, I'm not a liar. I just lied for almost nothing. But you know what? I didn't really lie. I really liked the experiment. I thought it was kind of interesting. So now it's fixed. Cognitive dissonance resolved. Hey, working like a woman, it's Laura Explorer. It's rare and in life in general to find people that you can listen to, that you can relate to. I look forward to calling into your station soon when I have the guts to actually talk about some stuff. Uh, you brought up a lot of great topics, so I'm really intrigued and I love the, the people that are calling into your station. So this is great and please keep up this great work and I look forward to the next one. Hello Working Like a Woman, this is D-Souls Production. I was listening to your content I was like, wow, uh, I love the content about the healthcare and repeating history. Keep going down the same road and getting the same results. You know what the definition of that is, insanity. Hey Ronnie, it's Gigi from Bright Beautiful World. Ever since you called into my station, I've been racking my brains about what I could share. Working like a woman. That's cool, that is really cool. Peace, love, and light.
Hi there, it's Dr. Get Ahead Space here. Here's a message from Ronnie from Working Like a Woman. Um, your last call in uh, really, really touched me. It it really did. And um, of course, I'm more than happy to um, now and again, you know, call in and 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 give out of, of my stories for days. Um, but also, you know, I I just look forward to hearing your content. I feel like I'm stalking you and your husband, but more, you guys are really um, Fermians and Bozans? Oh my. I mean, I'm learning all kinds of new stuff and I appreciate it and I mean that sincerely. Yeah, it's it's groovy what you guys are doing. I, I was always that nice drunk when I was a drinker. Okay, thanks so much and thanks for teaching me all kinds of new stuff today, you guys. I appreciate it, sincerely. Ronnie, working like a woman. I love your page and all the content that you put out. Um, it's a very empowerful woman. Good morning, working like a woman. Ronnie, hi, Barbara KB calling in. Well, I'm so glad you're starting this station here where women come and share their stories and discussings. This is very nice. There are a number of really strong, powerful women here at Anchor, and we discuss and talk amongst ourselves. So thanks for putting a station together um, to do that. Um, And thanks for calling in and, and asking me to share my story. Oh, my story as a woman, where to begin?